I, I'm trying to avoid the, the partisanship. I'm trying to avoid all of that and focus on the real issue here, which people are unaware of. Namely, that some big tech companies, Google in particular, now have certain powers to shift people's thinking and behavior, which had never existed before. They have those powers exclusively because they're monopolies and they have no competitors. They're exercising these powers. These powers, whether you know it or not, are shifting the thinking and behavior and votes of billions of people around the world. As of 2015, upwards of 20, 25% of the national elections in the world were being decided by Google. That number has gone up considerably since then. I'm just trying to ch- just show you the scale of the problem. In 2020, Google shifted more than 6 million votes to Joe Biden, whom I supported at the time. Uh, in 2024, if if the system I've been building to stop them, uh, which is called we call the Tech Watch Project or America's Digital Shield, if that system is not fully implemented in 2024 in the presidential election, Google will shift between 6.4 and 25.5 million votes to one presidential candidate generally speaking, without anyone knowing what they're doing and with no way to counteract what they're doing. America needs this voice. The times are crazy in a time of confusion, division and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. I want to make an announcement about the uh, movie Police State. We are going to release our official trailer today. And um, I'm really excited about this. The trailer is just um, a more extended version than the teaser. A teaser is kind of like a 90-second tease, a little glimpse of what's coming in the movie. The trailer gives you really a a fuller picture. And um, this is, um, in my view, uh, an emotionally uh, riveting uh, trailer. And I urge you to watch it and also to share it because that's how we get the word out. We want people to be widely aware of the film. I want to do my best to get the message completely out to Republicans and conservatives, but also reach uh, independents, uh, reach even Democrats, uh, because this is a problem for the whole country. Because I think if I can get some independents and Democrats to watch this movie, they'll be blown away. So you can help me with that process by getting the word out. Guys, I'm really happy to welcome to the podcast a new guest, Dr. Robert Epstein. He is Senior Research Psychologist at the American Institute for Behavioral Research and Technology. He's a Harvard PhD, former Editor-in-Chief of Psychology Today. He's an author. He's also taught at a number of universities, Boston University, University of California, Harvard University, and he has a tech watch project, which is um, uh, aimed at monitoring uh, Google and other big tech companies, which are, he says, manipulating our elections and indoctrinating our children. Dr. Epstein, welcome and thanks for joining me 
this is a really startling development that we see with these online platforms. Isn't it true that when these digital platforms started, they were dedicated to what seemed like a libertarian principle of open information, sharing information, uniting the world, shortening distances between people, and all of that somehow seems to have been pushed aside. First of all, is that an accurate description of what's happened? Um, and, and, and why, what, what brought about this amazing change? That's a very accurate description. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the first executives to quit Google, James Whitaker, long time ago, uh, almost 15 years ago now, when he quit, he said that when he first joined Google, it was this amazing, uh, environment of creativity and, uh, and goodwill. And he said, then he realized at some point it's changed into something else. He said it changed into a kind of a ruthless business, an advertising company. Uh, and he just couldn't stand it anymore. And so he, he left. He's very few people though have left, believe it or not, because the money is unbelievable. I mean, this company has likely made more more millionaires and billionaires than any other company in the world. It's very hard for people to leave there uh, just just because of the money. It's really a shame. But the, yes, it's changed, and so has Facebook. And they have become uh, ruthless uh, companies of uh, not only monetizing our personal data, but also in the case of Google, of wanting to uh, to to conduct very large-scale social engineering around the world. Uh, we know this from multiple leaks from the company, from whistleblowers, leaked documents and videos. There's simply no question at all. Uh, when I began my research on Google, which was more than 11 years ago, uh, there still wasn't that much that was clear about what they're doing. Now things are very clear, and it's quite frightening. The more we have learned, about uh, what this company and to a lesser extent some other tech companies are doing, uh, the more concerned we've grown. It's, uh, it's beyond anything envisioned in those famous novels, 1984 and Brave New World. It's beyond anything anyone's ever envisioned. And it's operating on a scale that no one ever envisioned either. Literally, uh, Google is now impacting deliberately and strategically the thoughts and behaviors of more than 5 billion people around the world, generally speaking, without anyone's knowledge, generally speaking, without even leaving a paper trail for authorities to trace, although I have a solution to that problem. Wow. I'd like to come, I'd like to dive into in a moment what Google is doing and how, but let's stay for a moment with the issue of this change that we've been talking about with these tech companies. You mentioned that they've, you know, they're driven by advertising revenue and perhaps corporate motives. Um, but obviously that's money. That, and that's one motive for why people do certain things. But it also seems that, and this is especially true with Google, but also Facebook, with the money and with the influence and the reach comes enormous power. Uh, and of course, we have Lord Acton, the absolute power corrupts absolutely. Do you think that these guys 
Is it the money or is it just the fact that they suddenly realize, guess what? We are controlling the searches of people around the planet. And so we have this power. Why not use it? I think that's exactly what happened. I think it crept up on them. And at some point they realized that uh, they could, uh, from their perspective, they could uh, do good for the world. And that's when the very deliberate social engineering uh, began. One of the videos that leaked from Google a couple of years ago is called The Selfish Ledger. If you look up my name, Robert Epstein, and The Selfish Ledger, you'll come to a transcript of it that I made, which I've annotated. And from there, you can get to a link that will bring you to the leaked video. It's an eight-minute video made by their advanced products division. And it literally is about the ability that the company has to re-engineer humanity. They call it behavioral sequencing. And they literally says, according to Google's values, I thought it said company values. I went back and double-checked yesterday, and it actually says, according to Google's values. So this is not my imagination. This is quite real, and this has been confirmed again and again by whistleblowers, people who have either been fired or who quit the company like Whitaker did years ago, uh, the, the company is a frightening place. Now, they don't see it that way, of course. They see themselves as do-gooders. Uh, fine, I actually agree with a lot of their values, but I don't want that much power in the hands of a private company that is in no way accountable to the American public or to any other public anywhere in the world. Let's take a pause. We'll be right back with Dr. Robert Epstein. By the way, his website, and this is a place also where you can support his work. It's mygoogleresearch.com, mygoogleresearch.com. I'm back with Dr. Robert Epstein, Senior Research Psychologist at the American Institute for Behavioral Research and Technology. His website, mygoogleresearch.com. Um, Dr. Epstein, um, Let's talk a little bit about you, because uh, you mentioned at the end of the last segment that, you know, some of these values, maybe even many of them that Google is promoting in terms of the substance, you might agree with them. Um, you you are actually not a conservative Republican. You're not making an ideological critique of Google per se. Talk a little bit about the fact that why, as a Democrat, as someone who would be, I would say, perhaps center left in your politics, you nevertheless see this as a big problem. Well, first of all, uh, I'm not a Democrat. I definitely have been center left, I think, my whole life. Uh, but I don't believe in the party system. I, I'm with the founding fathers on that issue with Washington, Jefferson, Adams, and others. Jefferson actually said, if the only way I could get to heaven would be to join a party, I wouldn't go. So I'm anti-party. But yes, I, I, I do lean left. And I, I, I don't think the agenda Google has is necessarily a bad thing. But I put myself into a terrible position personally. Uh, in, in doing the work that I do, which is basically discovering new forms of manipulation that have been made possible by the Internet, uh, uh, gathering evidence, overwhelming evidence, court admissible evidence showing uh, that Google, Google and to a lesser extent other companies are using these techniques uh, to manipulate elections and indoctrinate children. 
I've put myself into a terrible position. I literally have uh, friends and family uh, that won't talk to me anymore. Uh, I mean, no matter, you know, I, uh, a lot of my friends now are, I call them right wing conservative nutcases uh, to their faces and they laugh. They think I'm joking. Um, the fact is I'm in a terrible position personally and it's gotten worse and worse over the years. I've actually I've been cut off now from mainstream media, which has been my home most of my life. I mean, I have lots of friends in mainstream media because I used to be editor-in-chief of, a, of Psychology Today magazine, and I've published in USA Today and Time magazine and so on. These people have cut me off completely. Uh, so I, I guess I'm like Dershowitz in that sense. I've, I'm, I'm after the truth, and the truth, as my team and I have discovered, is terrifying. So I'm, that's it. To me, that the truth is more important than my political leanings. To me, America, which I happen to love, and our system of government, which I ad- admire more than any other, is more important than any candidate or party. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm after. I'm just trying to, uh, to find out what's really going on. And I have found out and I'm trying to let people know about what I found. And I'm trying to come up with ways of stopping these companies from doing what they're doing, uh, which is horrendous and operating on a scale that's never been possible before in human history. Uh, we're talking about power that no dictator ever even imagined. That's where we are at this point. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just doing what I need to do. Uh, putting aside personal values, personal leanings. And in some cases, again, this has caused tremendous trouble in my, in my personal life. I'm assuming that the people who are excluding you and the people who once, for example, would feature your work that are not doing it now, it's not because they have discovered that your current work is somehow riddled with errors or that you're making claims that they have somehow demonstrated to be false. It almost appears like they know or they must know that Google is doing all this, but they approve of it. And they go, wow, why is this guy who we thought was on our side kind of exposing this? Because exposing it might, might actually bring this, this to an end or, or, or might in some ways undermine what Google is trying to do. And so here's my question. The left going back to the 1960s was the champion of free speech, was hostile to government collusion with private institutions, did not like, for example, the concept of censorship at all. Do you think that there has been a seismic ideological shift, in a sense, in your own camp that has now made the team more hospitable to suppression and censorship and and indoctrination in a way that you can no longer or you can't stomach? Well, it does trouble me that a lot of the suppression of content uh, now is uh, coming from people on the left. That, that, that troubles me uh, greatly. Uh, but I do see the other side as well, because the fact is uh, there are plenty of conservatives now who are involved in uh, trying to remove books uh, from school libraries. That's been going on a very long time. Uh, there's, there's censorship on both sides, but it's true that the left, generally speaking, uh, was not known for doing that. Now, uh, you know, the, the very words that we utter 
uh, are, are, are being, there's pressure on us not to speak in certain ways. I mean, there's pressure that, that, that I've never seen before. And that kind of pressure is definitely uh, coming from uh, my friends, my former friends uh, on the left. So, you know, you're pointing to uh, some serious problems here. I, I'm trying to avoid the, the partisanship. I'm trying to avoid all of that and focus on the real issue here, which people are unaware of. Namely, that some big tech companies, Google in particular, now have certain powers to shift people's thinking and behavior, which have never existed before. They have those powers exclusively because they're monopolies and they have no competitors. They're exercising these powers. These powers, whether you know it or not, are shifting the thinking and behavior and votes of billions of people around the world. As of 2015, upwards of 20, 25% of the national elections in the world were being decided by Google. That number has gone up considerably since then. I'm just trying to just show you the scale of the problem. In 2020, Google shifted more than 6 million votes to Joe Biden, whom I supported at the time. Uh, In 2024... If if the system I've been building to stop them, uh, which is called we call the TechWatch project or America's Digital Shield, if that system is not fully implemented in 2024 in the presidential election, Google will shift between 6.4 and 25.5 million votes to one presidential candidate generally speaking, without anyone knowing what they're doing and with no way to counteract what they're doing. Let's take a pause when we come back more with Dr. Robert Epstein, his website, mygoogleresearch.com. I'm back with Dr. Robert Epstein, senior research psychologist at the American Institute for Behavioral Research and Technology, his website, mygoogleresearch.com. Dr. Epstein, um, You just described a moment ago Google interfering actively, not just in the U.S. election, but other elections around the world, shifting a not inconsequential, but actually very consequential number of votes, particularly in a in relatively evenly divided election. So perhaps providing the margin of difference. Talk for a little bit about how you discover that. I mean, you're, you're putting very precise numbers on this. How do you measure this? How do you track it? In other words, and then talk a little bit about what can be done to, to, to stop this. I'm assuming that there might be some people on the left who would say something like, Google's a private corporation. They can do this if they want to, but you're talking about election interference on a massive scale. Yes. In fact, I want to go back to one word that you mentioned, inconsequential. Uh, a lot of my new conservative friends are focused on things like ballot harvesting and ballot stuffing and ballot this and ballot that. What they don't understand is all of that thinking, that obsession with these conspiracy theories is actually uh, being pushed by uh, Google and Facebook and to a lesser sense, some other tech companies. Uh, those, it's, it's a kind of misdirection like magicians use. Uh, the, the, no story can go viral unless these companies allow it to go viral or make it go viral. All those stories that have obsessed people are pushed 
buy the tech companies because they don't want you looking at them. So what you're saying is that they, yeah, you're saying they're altering things before you even see it. Uh, and so that's the invisible part of the manipulation. And most people are looking for solutions at the, in the wrong place. Completely the wrong place. And they're looking at manipulations, which are real, but they're inconsequential to use your term. They shift here and there a few thousand votes. Google is shifting votes by the millions using extremely powerful techniques which people generally can't see. My team and I have been studying, discovering, quantifying those techniques since 2013. We've been presenting our results at scientific meetings. We've been publishing in some of the top peer-reviewed journals in the world. Uh, the first one we discovered is called SEAM, Search Engine Manipulation Effect. If you go to searchenginemanipulationeffect.com, uh, you actually uh, see our first publication on this discovery that was in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2015. Uh, we've discovered about a dozen of this, these techniques now. We know they have this power from controlled studies. We've also learned to do to them what they do to us and our kids 24 hours a day, and that is to track them. So you asked, how do I know they're shifting these numbers, these votes, and how do I know these exact numbers? Because we're tracking them. 24 hours a day. At this point in time, we are tracking Google and other platforms through the computers of more than 11,700 registered voters in all 50 states through the devices of more than 2,000 children. We have so far preserved more than 45, no, excuse me, we're up to 46 million ephemeral experiences on Google and other platforms Ephemeral experiences, what are those? Those are the techniques that these companies use to manipulate us. We know that from leaked emails from Google. Ephemeral experiences are those fleeting experiences we have when we see search results or search suggestions or answer boxes or news feeds. Uh, they affect us. They disappear. They're stored nowhere. They're gone forever. We have learned how to preserve them and to analyze them very, very quickly. Uh, you will soon have access to a public dashboard where we'll be showing you our findings day by day by day in real time. That's at americasdigitalshield.com, americasdigitalshield.com. You can go there now and see the mock-up. It's really extraordinary. And we are collecting and analyzing these data 24 hours a day. We are measuring the manipulation as it is occurring. When we have done this before and shared our results with members of Congress, they have sent a threatening letter. This has happened once so far to the CEO of Google, and Google stopped. They literally stopped. The same day they got that letter, they turned off all the manipulations, which include things such as sending partisan go vote reminders on their home page. Imagine that. For example, in the state of Florida in 2022, 100% of liberals were getting go vote reminders on Google's home page, only 59% of conservatives. That is a blatant and massive vote manipulation because that home page is seen 500 million times a day in the United States. If Google is doing that nationwide, and they are, in the presidential election, on election day alone, that gives their candidate more than 450,000 additional votes. So 
we have been studying this and using very rigorous scientific techniques. We know the numbers, and I'm just going to repeat what I said before. If our monitoring system is not fully implemented, and we need your help, by the way, and your audience's help to make this happen, if that is not fully implemented within the next few months, and we're getting there, we're getting close, but we need a lot more money uh, to, to make this uh, operational in all 50 states at the scale that it needs to exist. If we do not set that system up to make these companies accountable to the public for the first time, Google alone will be able to shift between 6.4 and 25.5 million votes in 2024 in the presidential election. This is not small-scale stuff. This is huge. This is not ballot stuffing. This is worldwide social engineering. We must stop this. This is not optional. This is a moral imperative. We must stop this. I mean, it's a clear and present danger, it seems to me, to democracy, but also more broadly speaking to to freedom. We've got to have you back, Dr. Epstein. This is just so eye-opening and frightening, to be honest. Um, by the way, a website where people can support your work, mygoogleresearch.com. Dr. Robert Epstein, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. I'm in section two of Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, and he's talking about the emptying of whole groups of people, whole nations, into the prison camps that are collectively known as the Gulag. And he starts off in this section by talking about the fact that people are arrested on the basis of lists. In other words, the government has a list. You get on the list one way or the other. It could be you're an informant. It could be that they saw your name in the newspaper. It could be that you showed up for a rally. It could be something you even said casually and somehow word got back. Point is you get on a list and then you're sort of done for. Um, arrested on the basis of lists. Free people were simply arrested and executed immediately. So some people didn't even make it to the gulag. They're shot before they even get there. From January 1919 on, writes Solzhenitsyn, food requisitioning was organized and food collecting detachments were set up. They encountered resistance everywhere in the rural areas, sometimes stubborn and passive, sometimes violent. The suppression of this opposition gave rise to an abundant flood of arrests during the course of the next two years, not counting those who were shot on the spot. So, Farmers who don't want to go along with collectivized farming, collectivized farming is where you grow your crops and you turn them into the government. The government takes your crops and then they distribute it as they see fit. So if you resist this, you protest, you try to block what the government is doing, you'll be arrested, you'll be executed. Next, Solzhenitsyn talks about religious people. He goes, the root destruction of religion in the country, which throughout the 20s and 30s was one of the most important goals of the GPU-NKVD. The GPU-NKVD is an acronym for the government agencies, could be realized only by mass arrests of Orthodox believers. So think of this, what Solzhenitsyn is getting at. These are sort of the standard groups that get targeted and somehow the religious believers find themselves in this. And, and, and it's kind of a good question as to why, because clearly the religious believers aren't mounting armed resistance. They don't pose a threat in that sense. 
but perhaps they pose a threat in positing a deity, uh, a higher object of worship than the state. And this is, in a sense, their real crime. Monks and nuns, writes Solzhenitsyn, whose black habits had been a distinctive feature of old Russian life, were intensively rounded up on every hand, placed under arrest, sent into exile. They arrested and sentenced active laymen. And so they're just going after anybody who has a religious affinity. True, they were supposedly being arrested and tried not for their actual faith, but for openly declaring their convictions and bringing up their children in the same spirit. Uh, and then Solzhenitsyn ironically quotes a poet, as Tanya Kodkiewicz wrote, you can pray freely, but just so God alone can hear. You're allowed to have faith, uh, but you got to keep it to yourself. If you talk to people about it, if you post about it, if you preach about it, even if you raise your own children in that faith, that's not allowed. The faith has got to sort of stay within you and never, you might say, exit your lips. Now, this poet who sarcastically exposed the uh, kind of strangeness of this government edict, you can, you can pray by yourself, but not, not so anyone can hear. She gets 10 years, uh, uh, prison time for these verses. A person convinced he possessed spiritual truth was required to conceal it from his own children. In the 20s, the religious education of children was a, was a political crime under Article 50A10. In other words, counter-revolutionary propaganda. And the only way out once you're arrested as a religious believer, says Solzhenitsyn, is you have to renounce your religion publicly. And he goes, this did not happen very often, but sometimes... Uh, you have two parents who are called up on religious charges and one parent uh, undertakes the sort of awful uh, burden of renouncing the faith, but not renouncing the faith really, but it's like I denounce my faith. Why? So I can now go home and look after the kids. So sometimes it's the dad who does that. Sometimes it's the mom. He goes, throughout all those years, women manifested great firmness in their faith. All persons convicted of religious activity received tenors the longest term then given. So Solzhenitsyn puts this word tenor in in italics. What does he mean? Ten years. A tenor is ten years in incarceration. And then he says, in uh, the 20s, waves appeared that were purely national in character. Now, what does he mean by national? Well, he's talking about nationalities. Different types of ethnic or social groups are collectively targeted. It's not that they're targeting this individual for that or another individual for. It's we're targeting groups and we're rounding them up as a group. In 1931, a grandiose trial of the Working Peasants Party was being prepared on the grounds that they existed as an enormous organized underground force among the rural intelligentsia. Now, Solzhenitsyn goes on to say that, that first of all, this is... This was a complete fabrication. There was no rural intelligentsia plotting against the government, but for whatever reason, the government targets these guys. And he says that they were accused of preparing to overthrow the dictatorship of the proletariat. At the trial, this working peasants party was referred to as if it was already well known and under detention. And then says Solzhenitsyn, then all of a sudden, one lovely night, Stalin reconsidered. Stalin changed his mind. Why? Maybe we will never know. 
Did he perhaps wish to save his soul? Solzhenitsyns here being uh, ironic. I wouldn't say funny, but ironic in a bitter way. Did his sense of humor come to the fore? Was it all so deadly, monotonous, so bitter tasting? So in other words, was Stalin, um, you know, he's just worn down by all the misery of just arresting people upon people. So he just goes, you know what? I'll change my mind. Let's, let's have a moment of levity. Let's let these guys go, if only as a joke. But then says Solzhenitsyn, but no one would dare accuse Stalin of having a sense of humor. I mean, this guy, he doesn't need the relief of laughter. He doesn't mind being a dictator through and through. He goes, likeliest of all, Stalin simply figured out the whole countryside would soon die of famine anyway. So why go to all the trouble? And instantly the whole trial was called off. So here Solzhenitsyn is highlighting the completely arbitrary, lawless nature of the police state. The police state is a ruthless engine. They make lists, they arrest you, but they're not even consistent with all that. It's not even like, okay, you know what? We've got a system of harsh repression. We're going to carry it out even-handedly. Suddenly Stalin decides, well, eh, I'm going to let these people go. So suddenly, they've, in fact, they've all confessed to their crimes. So now they're allowed to repudiate their confessions. Their, their crimes are essentially overturned by government edict, and they are mysteriously exonerated. 